Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And our guest this evening is U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. Tonight we'll be getting to know Senator Gillibrand and where she stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions. And then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Kirsten Gillibrand was born in Albany, New York in 1966 and graduated from the Emma Willard School in Troy, New York, the first all-women's high school in the U.S. She then went to Dartmouth College here in New Hampshire and obtained her law degree from UCLA. Gillibrand served as a law clerk on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, then worked as an attorney in New York City before becoming special counsel at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. She then moved to upstate New York and in 2006 launched a bid to unseat a longtime Republican in the U.S. House. Gillibrand won, served a term in Congress, before being appointed to the U.S. Senate, the seat vacated when Hillary Clinton resigned to be Secretary of State. She was elected in a special election for the seat and won re-election in 2012 and 2018. Gillibrand was the first U.S. Senator from New York in 40 years to join the Agriculture Committee and as a member of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, she has pushed the efforts to address perfluorochemical contamination in drinking water. Gillibrand lives in Brunswick, New York, with her husband and two sons. Senator Gillibrand, thank you so much for joining us on Conversation thank with the you. Candidate. Thank you. So there are so many candidates in this race, and uh, the easy way to break it down is there are the very progressive candidates and perhaps those leaning more towards the middle of the road. Where do we find you? I am a common sense candidate that finds common ground between anyone. Um, what I'm known for is getting elected in New York in the red places, the blue places, and the purple places. I have the highest vote percentage in the history of the state at 72%. And I just won back 18 counties that have gone to Trump in 2016. So I know how to bring people together, and I actually know how to get things done. I find common ground with Republicans uh, every year, and I pass legislation in the last Congress. I passed 18 bills that President Trump signed into law. He does not know he signed my bills into law, but he did. We saw what a slog it was to get health care through in 2009. Are candidates being intellectually honest with voters when they say we can do Medicare for all, we can do climate change, we can do campaign finance reform, when it's so hard just to pass one thing? Yes, uh, I think the American people want health care as a right and not a privilege. They don't think it's a commodity that you should have to be able to afford to actually be able to have access to. And so I believe people should buy into Medicare at a price they can afford, a percentage of income, 4 or 5%, and have a four or five year transition period where people get to choose it. And over time, 4 or 5% of your income is much less than you're paying today. So more people will buy in because Medicare is better. It's got more coverage. I'd make sure the reimbursement rates were accurate, and I'd make sure we got the lowest rate for drugs to make it affordable from the drug companies. And then that's how you get to not only single payer, but health care uh, as a right uh, that's universal and permanent. I ultimately want to make it an earned benefit, just like Social Security. And we know how well that works. So I believe it's possible, and I think that's common ground amongst a lot of Americans to allow us to create competition with a not-for-profit option to get us to single-payer. Do you believe this country is as divided as it would appear on social media and cable news? Well, we know that um, President Trump has really spent 
his presidency dividing America, dividing us on every racial line, religious line, socioeconomic line, and it's making us less safe and a weaker country. Uh, this country is not known for being afraid of one another or being afraid of our neighbors. In fact, what makes this country strong is when we treat others the way we want to be treated, to care about the least among us. And those are our values, and those have been lost under President Trump. So I'm running for president because I will take on the battles that other people won't. I will bring people together to get things done. I have a common sense approach that actually works. I pass big bills like don't ask, don't tell repeal and small bills like the last Congress where I got more money for rural broadband. It's what the country needs. I think this country could do a lot with a working mom in the White House instead of a misogynist. And uh, I think we need someone who's going to bring us back together again. There is undoubtedly a crisis at the southern border now with the number of migrants who are coming there. Some in your party have compared to the detention centers where they're being held to concentration camps. Do you agree with that characterization and what would you be doing as president to address that crisis? I believe separating children from their parents at the border is inhumane. I think it is contrary to our values as a country, anti-American, and we can do much better. Um, Democrats are not afraid of investing in border security. In fact, I would invest in border security, the anti-terrorism, cross-border uh, criminal activity, the cross-border gun trafficking, human trafficking, and drug trafficking. President Trump has diverted money away from that, uh, Customs and Border Patrol and Homeland Security initiatives, and in actually spent the money in for-profit prisons. I would not be locking up mothers and children in for-profit prisons. I would create a community-based processing system where families seeking asylum who um, appear uh, in, at, at a border crossing, they will be given a lawyer, a court date, and have a community-based response. I would give them real judges uh, to have a proper asylum system, and I would make sure it was a humane process. Uh, I would put that whole process back under the Department of Justice uh, where it used to be. I would not have it um, diverting funds away from the Homeland Security missions of stopping terrorism and stopping human trafficking. At the very least, though, don't you think it's perhaps unfair to conflate what's going on at the border to the Holocaust? You know, it doesn't matter what you call it. What's happening at the border right now is unjust, it is inhumane, and it's morally wrong. Senator Gillibrand, thank you for answering these questions. Thank you. Some tougher ones await back there with the town hall audience. And coming up after the break, we will bring our studio audience into this conversation. Do stay with us. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's You Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join You Local. See you there. We're going to jump right into our questions from our town hall audience here of New Hampshire voters, and we're going to start with Mr. Roger Ford. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator. So I teach at the University of New Hampshire, and I see firsthand the effects of student loan debt on my students. Yeah. Um, there's now more student loan debt than credit card debt, uh, car debt, healthcare debt. Yeah. So two questions. One, what do you think led to this problem, and what do you do about it? Um, I'm going to start with the second question first because I have a very long answer about what led to this. So I do two things to relieve student debt. I don't think the federal government should be making money off the backs of our students. And most student debt is federal debt. 
So I would automatically refinance all federal debt at the lowest rate for debt that's available for any other kind of debt, mortgage or business, business loans. So that's at about 4% today. So automatic refinance of all federal debt at 4%. I would augment all the programs that make college more affordable, Pell Grants, all the other uh, support for uh, students. But the big idea on affordability is national public service. I would offer to every young person in America that if they're willing to do a year of public service, I would offer two years of community college or state school free. If they're willing to do two years of public service, I'd offer four years free. And I'd open up what the public service opportunities are, because this is based on the GI Bill, which we know is one of the greatest economic engines after World War II. I'd open it up to healthcare work, to education, to green jobs, and to first responders, because those are industries where we're desperate for young people to choose as their career paths. That would make college more affordable for anyone who's willing to do public service. And for those who are already out of school, if they're willing to do public service, they can get the same grants to apply to defray their debt uh, or to uh, apply to an advanced degree uh, or to starting a business, as long as they're willing to do that public service career. Now to the question of how did we get here. You look at any problem in Washington, any so-called unsolvable problem, and I will show you the corrupt special interest standing in the way. So the sweetheart deal was made long ago with these uh, lenders to say, we're never going to allow you to get rid of your student debt. We're not going to allow students to declare bankruptcy, unlike any other debt in the world. Sweetheart deal with the lenders, with the banks, with the people who are going to make money off student debt to say, we will never let them get rid of it in debt bankruptcy, and we won't, let, we won't make them get the lowest rate. We'll let you charge what you want. So that's how Washington works. There's a greed and corruption at the root of every problem. And it's, it's a rot that's rotting at the core of our democracy. And it undermines everything we want to get done, everything. We've heard a lot of plans in this campaign, lots of good ideas. None of them are possible if you don't get money out of politics. So I'm the only presidential camp camp candidate that has a comprehensive, um, transformative uh, idea about publicly funded elections. We can get to clean elections and to take out political corruption by having publicly funded elections. And it's easy. Any candidate willing to be a publicly funded candidate would be only allowed to take contributions up to $200, but every voter would be given $200 to, to actually invest in presidential campaigns, Senate campaigns, and House campaigns. And so you'd be going to your community center to ask for votes plus resources. You'd be going to housing uh, um, communities. You'd be going to um, the grocery store. You'd be going to any place where your constituents are and asking, will you support my campaign, both with a vote and with, with investment? It would change everything. They've done it in Seattle, and it actually worked. And in Seattle, uh, it changed who participated. Instead of just white, wealthy men, it was also women. It was people of color. It was low-income workers, just an entirely different community, younger people that were never involved in those local campaigns. And that's how you change the players list, and it's how you can start getting things done. All right, thank you, Roger. Next question comes from Joan Wentworth. Good evening, Senator. When you were first elected to Congress, you achieved an A rating from the NRA. More recently, as a senator, you received an F rating from that same organization. Could you explain how and why your position on gun rights has evolved? And how would you approach this issue as president? Yeah. So um, I've had a proud F rating by the NRA for 10 years. 
Uh, and it's because when I became senator, I recognized that I needed to do more to end gun violence, that I couldn't just be concerned with my rural upstate New York district that didn't have the same level of gun violence as the rest of my state. And so I went down and I met with families who had actually suffered from gun violence. And I met with a, a parents who lost their daughter to a stray bullet just because she was at a party with her friends. I met her whole class. And I can tell you, when you look in the eyes of a parent who's lost a child or a friend who's lost their best friend, it's everything. And you know, and I knew at that moment that I was wrong and that I needed to lead. And so I've been leading ever since. I've been uh, authoring legislation to stop gun trafficking um, cross, cross states, uh, making it a federal offense and having real um, 25-year sentences for the kingpins and the traffickers. I have uh, also led on universal background checks, making sure no one who shouldn't have a gun has access. And I've led on banning large magazines and military-style assault rifles. I will pass all the legislation as president. I will make it a priority. Because the truth is, if I do take money out of politics, then the Parkland kids will have as much power in our democracy as the Koch brothers or as the NRA. Because if you want to do anything to end gun violence, you got to take on the corruption and greed that defines the gun manufacturers and the NRA. They care more about gun sales, they care more about profits than they do people, than they do our kids. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. Next question comes from Laura Magsis. Uh, Senator Gillibrand, uh, scientists are saying that we have um, 12 years before we're likely in, in danger of a climate catastrophe. Yeah. Why are you the best candidate to address this issue? Yeah. Um, I'm the best candidate and I'm the best person to be president because I see global climate change as the greatest threat to humanity that it is. And I actually have a vision and a plan to actually bring us together to do real reform. I will pass the Green New Deal, and I'll tell you how, and I will put a price on carbon. I will rejoin the Global Climate Accords on the first day, and it's not just signing on, it's actually leading the global conversation. And it's not hard, because the Green New Deal, there's three ideas under that. Infrastructure, which everybody supports, green jobs, which everybody supports, and clean air and clean water also, which everybody supports. Those are three bipartisan ideas, all of which I've passed legislation in the last decade about. In the last Congress, I just passed money for rural broadband. Um, I've been leading on getting rid of PFOA and PFAS in our water. I've had a town hall right here in New Hampshire on the very same issue, uh, a, a round table with experts talking about why it matters to have clean wa water in every place in this state as every place in the country. And then green jobs is literally just teaching young kids STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, making sure our community colleges and our state schools have pipeline training right into these green fields, whether it's wind, solar, geothermal, hydropower, biofuels, energy efficient building materials. I would make the issue of global climate change part of any trade talks, any foreign relations with any other world power. If we were investing in that country, we would require that you are also invested in green energy and attacking global climate change. Now, the only thing that's new about the Green New Deal is the goal of net zero carbon emissions in 10 years. I see it just like when John F. Kennedy said he wanted to put a man on the moon. He wanted to do it in 10 years. 
He had no clue if he could get a man on the moon in 10 years. But he knew it would be an organizing principle. He knew it would be a rallying cry to show our competitiveness as a nation. So he said, we do this in the next 10 years not because it's easy, but because it's hard, because it's a measure of who we are as a nation, our competitiveness, our innovation. It's the same thing with green, a green economy. Why not, instead of a space race with Russia, how about a green energy race with China? How about create a worldwide competition for who can figure out how to build the best energy efficient buildings, who can create the most energy efficient wind and solar, who can actually solve the problem. And I will inspire our whole country to galvanize around this goal, inspiring young kids to want to be engineers, inspiring mathematicians and scientists to want to invest in this. And by putting a price on carbon, you're going to use market forces to help you because you will charge polluters more, you will charge fossil fuel industries more, and you will give tax benefits and lower cost and more resources to those who are innovating and those in the green energy space. All right, thank you, Laura. Quick follow on this one, Senator. Who should decide the price of carbon, the president or the Congress, and what should that price be? So I think Congress should. I think you should uh, actually gal galvanize Democrats and Republicans around this. Uh, I think it's very simple uh, to um, come up with a, a plan for how to do that effectively. And I think it can be done because even the fossil fuel industry sees the future. Uh, if you go to Texas, you'd think, God, they must really hate green energy because of oil. Well, you know what? They're already diversified. Number one wind producer in America is Texas because they've diversified. Even a state like Iowa, you think, oh, they're going to be for this. Yeah, they are because they're going to solve next generation biofuels because cellulosic ethanol is something you haven't figured out yet and you don't have to use corn for it. You can use switchgrass or you can use willow or you can use farm waste. So you can galvanize everyone and I'd rather do it with the support of Congress uh, to move major legislation to tackle global climate change for the great threat to humanity that it is. Next question comes from Marie Mulroy. Hi, how are you, Senator? Yeah, you've touched on it in a lot of your questions, but my question for you is if you could elaborate on how you would diminish the control of and influence of lobbyists and special interest groups in Washington. Couple of ways. First, publicly funded elections, so that money isn't streaming into congressional campaigns from special interests, because that's the way it is today. Mm -hmm. Um, I, as a campaign, already don't take super fund. I won't have a super PAC. I don't take corporate um, PAC money, and I don't take federal lobbyist money. I'd also stop the revolving door where members of Congress become lobbyists a few years after they leave. Um, that, that is a very uh, negative revolving door that really empowers the special interests that are willing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in salaries to these former members of Congress for their relationships for uh, the way they can get in behind closed doors. And so you really need to shine a light on the greed and corruption that runs Washington. And you can also do it uh, with ethics reform, um, really making sure that pay for play system doesn't exist. Um, and I would do it across the board for Congress, for the executive branch, and the judicial branch. They don't even have the same ethics rules we do. Did you know that members of the Supreme Court can be wined and dined by special interests, taken on junkets so that they have more opportunity to influence them? That's part of the dark money in Washington that really does corrode everything. Thank you, Marie. Email question coming in from Sarah Locke. She asks, what is your plan to repair our tense relationships with our allies across the globe? Yeah. So. Um, after I Clorox the Oval Office, my second uh, presidential act will be to restore our moral leadership on the world stage. 
And I think what President Trump has done is really harmed our standing worldwide. America has always been seen as this beacon of light and hope, a country to follow, a country to aspire um, to our generosity and our willingness to help others. And we really lost that under this president. He's um, berated and alienated our allies. He doesn't even want to meet our NATO requirements. Uh, he's alienated Canada. <laughs> He's alienated Mexico. Uh, he um, is a name caller. He's someone who demeans the vulnerable. He actually punches down. And I think we deserve a president who's brave, who will shine a light on injustice, who will raise up the voiceless, who will fight for those who need someone to fight for them. And that is who I am. So I'll do a couple of things to stabilize the world's communities. Uh, first of all, uh, I will look at the Middle East and create a path to peace. I will re-engage on the Iran deal. I will ask uh, the EU, Russia, and China to get back to the table with, the, with Iran and figure out where common ground could lie. Because with this breach that President Trump started, Iran is now um, making more uranium and at a higher um, uh, intensity. And so it is going to soon be uh, weapons-grade uranium. And that is hugely destabilizing because when Iran has a nuclear weapon, Saudi Arabia will follow, and so will many other Middle East countries, which just creates a powder keg. So you need the world community to get back to the table to have a much longer, long-term permanent agreement with Iran, where they will give up nuclear weapons for 20, 30, 40 years. You want this to be a multi-generational agreement. You want less money and a requirement to stop spending on terrorism. You need to uh, really hold them accountable for breaching missile agreements. So that's what you can do back at the negotiating table, as long as you're willing to create a longer-term agreement with all our allies. And that's what President Trump has destabilized. I would also be looking for a two-state solution in the Middle East, something that President Trump has not fought for or tried to create. Uh, and I would stand up to the Saudis when they're wrong. Uh, after the Khashoggi murders, after the Khashoggi murder, President Trump did nothing. He didn't hold the Saudis accountable. After all the suffering in Yemen, uh, he wouldn't even stop uh, supporting the Saudis. And it has to change. We should have moral authority on the world stage. Um, the only thing I will give him credit for is at least he's not bombing North Korea. He's trying to talk to North Korea. He's not very good at it, but at least he's trying. Uh, and that's far better than where he started, where he was really saber-rattling and saying he did not need Congress's permission to bomb North Korea if he saw fit. And the fact that uh, he has been so close um, to making such ill-advised decisions on the world stage is deeply troubling. And I will stabilize our our, um, our role in the world, as well as stabilize the Middle East so we don't have to be forced into another needless war. I would also draw down our troops in Iran, excuse me, in Iraq, in um, Syria, uh, and in Afghanistan, uh, because we do not need more endless wars. Candidate Trump promised to end endless wars, uh, said countries don't have endless wars, strong countries don't. Well, he hasn't done it, and I would. Okay. We're actually going to sub-questioners right real quick here. We've got Hella Ross coming down. Uh, she is fr uh, from Rochester, and she has a question for you about Senator. if you become the nominee. Nice to see you. Um, as a former New Yorker, I welcome you to my home state of New Hampshire for the past 30 years. And I'd like to thank you for your service and your legislative achievements in the Senate during your tenure there. My question is, 
would you consider selecting a female running mate? I would. Great. <laughs> I really love the women who are running for the Senate. I have some incredible colleagues that I've worked with for a long time, and I think they would all uh, be extraordinary presidents and vice presidents. That's wonderful. Thank quick, you. Quick follow-up there, if you don't mind, Senator. Uh, this question comes up often enough, uh, sometimes in this forum, sometimes in others. Have you thought about how you would handle Donald Trump on a debate stage? I have. So, <laughs> so when he starts to creep up on me, <laughs> exactly, I will say, excuse me, your spot is over there. It is not your turn. It is my turn. And I would treat him like the spoiled toddler that he acts like because he is impetuous. He wants his way when he wants his way. And as a mother of young kids, I, I just don't tolerate that. And, and I wouldn't allow it. Um, I've had opponents who have tried to bully me. My first two races in Congress, uh, my first opponent, name called, demeaned, dismissed. Uh, he said things like, mm, she's just another pretty face. And of course I said, thank you, but let's get talking about getting our troops out of Iraq. And so I was able to pivot away from you know, his efforts to demean by talking about what I was for. Same thing happened with my second opponent who ran really negative ads, very unattractive ads of me with my face in red and flames coming out of my head and a very dark voice saying, she's not who you think she is. <laughs> so it, they were so bad, I, I had to turn off the TV for three months because I had a toddler. Theo was only three at the time and I didn't want Theo to see pictures of his mom's face going up in flames. Uh, and so, uh, but it was an interesting campaign because I was pregnant out to here with Henry. So by election day, I have an infant and a toddler. And we recognized pretty early on you actually can't win a congressional campaign with negative ads against a young mom with an infant and a toddler because no one believes you. And I beat him by 24 points. So I have stood up to bullies. And I've taken on fights that other people won't. I mean, I've stood up to the Pentagon twice, first over don't ask, don't tell repeal and then over sexual violence in the military. I've stood up to the banks, even as a member of Congress from New York, uh, when both parties were throwing billions at the banks during the financial collapse, uh, I bothered to read the bill. And it was designed to leave taxpayers holding the bag, so I voted no, twice. Uh, and I've stood up to Congress many times. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. We have our crack team of New Hampshire voters here with their questions, and we're going to start this half hour commercial free with Carolyn Moore. Hi there. I'm going to ask you about prescription drugs. Yes. I have one friend, his drug price went from $19 to $60 this month. Another one who went from $41 to $200. Have you or anyone in Congress taken a step to start that ball rolling to help with the greed of prescription drugs so that when you become president, you would be able to sign the bill within the first 100 days. Yes, so thank you. And I'm sorry you have been um, really price gouged. Uh, the fact that the prices of the medicines that you need keep going up is unconscionable. And it shows the real greed and corruption within the drug industry. So I would do a couple of things. I've been working on legislation uh, that's very strong to end price gouging. And what it would do is if a drug company raises their rates every year by more than a certain amount, uh, that you would be able to claw back their profits from that drug to stop them from price gouging. 
Second, for Medicare, I would make sure we go back to the drawing board and tell the drug manufacturers that for Medicare patients, you have to give them the lowest price for the drug available anywhere. It's absurd that Canada gets cheaper drugs than America, uh, but that was the sweetheart deal that was made in the dead of night during George W. Bush's administration when they wrote Medicare Part D, and those drug companies came in and guaranteed that they would always get to charge whatever they like. So I would make sure if we're going to build on Medicare for All, that one of the first things you do is renegotiate that and get the lowest price. And last, if you are someone who should have access to a generic drug, like insulin, it should be generic. It's not yet. It's shocking. It's been decades, and it's still not generic. Uh, I would, if that company would not, um, First, I try to change our patent laws so it would be harder for them to keep just t changing the patent so in such small ways to guarantee no, um, um, no generic. I would ask the NIH to start producing drugs and create a not-for-profit uh, public competition uh, for any drug that should have been generic and have been publicly available for more than 10 years and still not generic. I would go after them directly um, because it's not right. And it's true for the drug prep, uh, the drug you need to survive if you have AIDS. Uh, it's $14,000 a year, and that's not right. No one should have to go bankrupt just to save their lives. And I just think there's too much greed in the system. Thank you. And, Thank and you. then the last was get the money out of politics, which will help. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, next question comes from Elizabeth Radisich. Hi. Thank you, Senator. Um, you were one <coughs> of the early leaders in the Me Too movement, um, and one of the hallmarks of that is uh, how you spoke out early for Senator Franken to resign. Mm -hmm. And I agreed with you on that decision uh, for him to resign. However, over the last two years, as things have unfolded, I have felt that my personal judgment that he should go was maybe hasty and incorrect. Um, looking back on that situation and reflecting, is there any way, anything that you would have changed about how you would have handled that? Um, no. Most people don't know the facts around what happened. Senator Franken had eight credible allegations against him, two since he was senator, and the eighth one was a congressional staffer. And I had a decision made to make whether I was going to continue to stay silent and defend him and carry his water or say what I believed, that it's not okay. <clears throat> Senator Franken had his own decision to make. His decision was whether to stick it out, go to his ethics committee hearing, um, wait for his next election. Those are his decisions. No one senator, no senator at all can make another senator resign. I can just express myself. Now, as a mother of boys, I have two boys, one's 11 and one's 15, the conversations I was having at home were disturbing because Theo said to me, Mom, why are you so tough on Al Franken? And I said, oh, Theo, it is not okay to grope a woman anywhere on her body without her consent. And it's not okay to forcibly kiss a woman ever without her consent. And it's not okay for Senator Franken, and it's not okay for you. And so I needed to have clarity. I also needed clarity because I've led on this issue for nearly a decade. I've led the movement to upend sexual assault in the military and have accountability and a process so that men and women can be heard and have justice. I've led the debate on college campuses, ending sexual assault on college campuses, and I've since led the debate on ending sexual harassment in Congress on a bipartisan basis with Ted Cruz, um, which we ultimately passed unanimously. I got it for you. And so for me, I needed clarity on this. Mm -hmm. and. You know, it's hard when you have a colleague who's well-liked, 
uh, to do what's right. It's really hard. And, you know, I, I, there is no prize. There is no prize ever for someone who wants accountability against a powerful man who's really good at his day job. I could have told any of the other senators who followed me that day. And when I called in to resign, 34 other senators followed me. Mm -hmm. It might not seem like that today because I seem to stand alone, but I would stand by those eight women again if it happened today. Thank you for your answer. You're welcome. Follow up on that, Senator. Uh, the late John McCain took mm. a number of stands on his own and was mm -hmm. called a maverick. Mm. Uh, why aren't they calling you maverick? Because I don't know. It's, would be a, <laughs> it would be a great, a great um, but is that, nickname. But is that sexism? I don't know. I, I just know I've been in this space for so long, and I can tell you every woman and man who's come forward in the military against a higher-ranking officer who's good at his day job, it's the reason why they are disbelieved, retaliated against, and um, justice is impossible. It's just really hard. And we've seen powerful people um, n never be held accountable. And, and I understand these circumstances are very different than others. This is just allegations of sexual harassment, of groping and forcible kissing. It's not the same as sexual assault or rape, but it still matters, and it's not okay. And I believe we should have a higher standard, not a lower standard, for people in public service. Next question comes from Dan Bergeron. Maverick Gillibrand. Yes. <laughs> As a school board member here in Manchester, I'm concerned about for-profit, publicly traded companies like K12.com that made almost $760 million in just three months. 88% of that revenue came from managing public school districts. So um, I question who the priority is in that yeah. situation. Is it the shareholder what or is it the student? K12.com. And there's several and of they them. They, they've done well schools? under this administration, yes. Wow. That's 88% of the revenue for this particular company is managing public schools. That doesn't sound so, like a good use of taxpayer yeah, dollars. So I, I just question. So I guess, uh, you know, when it comes to your administration, it comes down to policy. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to reflect yeah, on the sure. type of policies that... The first thing I would um, do is not appoint someone like Betsy DeVos to be my mm -hmm. education secretary, point one. I would appoint somebody who believes in public schooling, uh, perhaps a public school teacher, someone who's actually uh, understands why our public schools are so important. I believe that it shouldn't matter what blo block you grow up on. Every child in this country should have access to a high-quality public school. So as president, I would do a couple of things differently. Uh, I would fully fund special ed. The fact that special ed is funded at 18%, it's supposed to be 40%. As president, I'd fund it at 50%. Because once you do that, you have far more resources. So you can have not only the special ed teachers that you need, but you can have more resources for the other teachers for higher pay and more resources in the classroom. I would also ask the federal government to fund um, aspects of public schooling that sometimes are left behind in public schools that don't have resources, like art, like music, like gym, like civics. Uh, and I would also have the federal government try to offset some of the um, bricks and mortar expenses. Those are the kinds of ways the federal government can help local school budgets. And I'd really incentivize uh, federal money uh, for states that are willing to equalize their funding, meaning that if you live in a low-income district and your, and your school is not functioning well because it doesn't have any resources versus a wealthy dis district that has plenty of money and the 
public school's great. That's wrong. It shouldn't matter what block you go up, grow up on. So I'd really incentivize the states to be more creative about equalizing their funding and, and getting more resources to where it's needed. Thank you, because there's only 1% increase in public yeah, funding. Yeah, it's not so enough, and, and we need to invest in our kids. I'd also amplify that by investing in universal pre-K and affordable daycare, so early childhood education is being funded, and then our idea of national public service to get to debt-free college. Right on. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Dan. Next question comes from Nancy King. Hi. Thank you for coming and answering our questions. Of course. I think a lot of us are undecided, and we're just trying to find a common area where we can yeah. relate to someone. Yeah. I am a former educator. I'm a mother. I'm a grandmother. And the one thing that's really bothering me about politics in general right yeah. now is the, the level of discourse. Yes. There doesn't seem to be any give and take um, the way I think the planners had expected it to be, that yeah. you couldn't have a debate. So I'm always looking for ways to have people say nice things about people. Sure. Um, could you, with so many good candidates running, and I won't hold you to this, but could you think of some of the candidates that are running that you would like to see in your administration? Oh, um, I think almost all of them would be extraordinary in different capacities. Um, we are blessed to have 23 Democrats who are running right now who uh, have dedicated their lives in different respects to serving others. And we've heard a lot of really good ideas, and so I'd consider all of them um, in different capacities. Uh, and I would be delighted if they would serve in my administration. Um, it would help make this country stronger and better. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, uh, Nancy. The next question comes from Natalia Orlando. Hi, thank you for being here. Um, obviously, there's a lot of important issues that are pressing that keep coming up. Many you've already touched upon. What do you think when you do get the nomination that ultimately will be the defining issue that you and Donald Trump will go back and forth on? Uh, all his broken promises, <laughs> the fact that he promised to lower prescription drug prices and hasn't, the fact that he promised we're going to have better health care that's universal and cheaper hasn't <laughs> happened. All he's done is dismantle the Affordable Care Act. His promise to bring back uh, manufacturing jobs and to have no bad trade deals, he started a trade war with China, which is really harming agriculture as well as manufacturing. The fact that he hasn't brought back manufacturing jobs, that he doesn't actually in invest in what it would take to have more growth of the manufacturing sector and start rewarding work, supporting our unions, supporting higher pay, supporting better job training. He hasn't done any of the things he promised to do. And so all those people who voted for him who felt deeply left behind, who felt that the economy wasn't working for them. He's the one who said the system's rigged, but he's the guy rigging it. He's the one who's lined his cabinet with the elite of the elite. He said he drained the swamp. All he's done is fill it up. Uh, and he's the big toad right in the middle. So uh, I, I believe, I believe that, um, that I will talk about our differences and I will talk about things I've actually accomplished in public service over the last decade and what I would accomplish as president versus what he promised to do and his failure to meet any of those goals. All right, thank you, very well said. <laughs> thank you, Natalia. Next question comes from Tracy Miller. Hi, nice to meet you. Um, you. Mitch McConnell is controlling the Senate and Congress. Why isn't there talk about removing him from office? Well, there is. Uh, <laughs> there's so much. And it's, I just endorsed his opponent uh, in, um, 
in his state to, for Senate. And so I am actually very excited that we have an opportunity to flip that seat in Kentucky. I also believe there's at least five or six other seats around the country that we could flip. Uh, so he will no longer be the majority leader. Uh, and we have good candidates uh, running all across the country. And so I have faith that if America's voter is on fire as they're on fire today, they just flipped the House in 18, I truly believe in 20 we can not only take the presidency, but we can flip the U.S. Senate. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Tracy. A uh, question coming in from Facebook and Tony Masson. He asks uh, or says, please tell us how you're going to actually improve the economy and create more jobs than President Trump. Okay, so a couple of things. Um, the economy isn't working for everybody right now. Let's just be clear about that. The economists can say the economy is growing, but you ask regular people in New Hampshire, are you feeling that you're better off than you were yesterday? Do you feel like you have a brighter future than you had yesterday? And the answer is likely going to be no, because despite those, the low um, stated unemployment rate, real unemployment is much higher. It's between 7% and 10%, 12%. I mean, it can be it's so much higher if you begin to count the people who have stopped looking for work uh, or who um, are working more than one job but aren't fully employed. Um, there's so much need for uh, better jobs, more higher wages, and more opportunity. So to make that happen, I would do at least three things. First, I would support our unions. When you have a union job, you're going to earn 25% more in wages and have better benefits. And so will your whole community, because when a com community is unionized, uh, there's higher wages for everybody. Uh, second, um, I would support a higher minimum wage, $15. I'd index it to inflation so it keeps growing so people can actually feed their family even if they're working 40 hours a week. And you need to have a living wage to do that. I'd get rid of the tip wage. I'd put it all under minimum wage. Third, um, I would start uh, investing in job training. I would guarantee that no matter who you are, if you're underemployed or unemployed, that we would use our community colleges, our state schools, our apprenticeship programs and our not-for-profits to actually do the training to get them into a job in their community, in the field they want, so they can continue to earn their way into the middle class. One example, when Bombardier needed advanced welders in the North Country in New York, uh, they went to the local community college and said, we couldn't find anybody in 500 miles. Just offer this coursework. We'll hire your graduates. It's a $70,000 a year job. They've already trained and placed 100 workers through that program. It works. And so imagine the federal government saying, we're going to invest in those programs around the country as a guarantee. So no matter who you are, you can be earning at a higher uh, level. Next question comes from Leonard Morrill. First of all, thank you for being here today. I'm an undecided voter. And for the last 10 years, most I've seen Congress is one party or another investigating each other. There. If half as much effort had been spent on Social Security, infrastructure, gun violence, or race relations, we have, would have come a long way to solve those problems. Why should I vote for somebody that's in Congress? Well, I've been there long enough to know exactly what's in our way. I've been there long enough to see the greed and corruption at the root of every problem that seems so unsolvable today. I know exactly the special interest groups that are in the way of health care as a right, not a privilege. The drug companies, the insurance companies, I know what's in the way of passing a Green New Deal. The polluters, the fossil fuel industry, I know what's in the way to ending gun violence, the NRA and the gun manufacturers. And I can tell you, if you have no experience, they will run circles around you. Um, I've been able to outmaneuver um, 
majority leaders who don't share my values by passing bills, by making the issue so important that everybody supports it. I did it with the 9-11 health bill. When the 9-11 health bill was given to me to lead, I was a freshman senator and there was no interest by Congress in helping our 9-11 first responders. It had had, it had had how many, it was languishing in the House for seven years, had over 20 hearings and it was dead on arrival. So I knew that I needed to create support. So I made sure that the first responders came to Washington, knocked on the doors, made their case to every senator about what was happening in their lives, why they were dying of these horrible cancers because they breathed in all those toxins when the towers fell. They stayed on that pile, first looking for survivors and then doing cleaning up the remains. They had the hardest job. And the EPA at the time told them the air was safe. It was not. More firefighters have died since 9-11 than on 9-11. So I made sure I lifted up their voices. But it was, still wasn't enough. And I went on every TV show, CNN, MSNBC, even John Stewart spent two whole episodes on the 9-11 first responders. It wasn't enough. I knew I needed Fox News. So I went into the lion's den and I met with Roger Ailes. And I said, Roger, why is your party not supporting our first responders? You say Republicans are the party of first responders. Where are you? And I convinced him he had to support it. And so we created such support that we have John Stewart on one side supporting it and Fox News on the other side. You're going to get it done. That's how we passed the bill unanimously. We changed the conversation in the country about this issue. Sometimes that's what you have to do. And as president, I know what I'm up against. I will use that bully pulpit to bring Congress along, to find those colleagues who are Republicans in red and purple states to work with me to get things done. I know how to bring people together because that's what I've done. In the last Congress alone with the Republican House, Senate, and president, I passed 18 bills. 18 bills. President Trump had no experience, no relevant experience, no experience really at all. Has he gotten anything done? No, because he doesn't know how to bring people together. He doesn't know how to reach across the aisle and find common ground and get things done. The experience I have is the experience that the next president needs to actually govern and to heal this divide that President Trump's created. Because I represent everybody. It doesn't matter who you are or where you live or who you love. I will fight for you, and I will fight for your family as if they were my own. And that's who I am, and that's why I'm running for president. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Leonard. Next question comes from Clara Monier. Good evening, Senator. It has been predicted that there will be a financial crisis in Social Security by the year 2035. Mm. Now, you've been in Congress a number of years. Yeah. Have you taken on that problem, and why hasn't this been solved? Well, uh, yes, I have. Um, I've worked on a bill with our colleagues, um, some of whom are also running for president, to solve the problem. And what you need to do is blow the cap. Right now, uh, only the first 130 some odd thousand dollars uh, is taxed uh, at just over 6% to put into the Social Security Trust Fund to be there for you. But there's not enough. It's going to run out of money very soon. So I think all income levels should be taxed at six point whatever percent so that we can have the resources we need to fund Social Security forever. Um, the bill that we wrote has a donut hole, so we don't have to increase taxes on middle class families. So it starts up again at 250000 so it is for the highest wage earners in America. And that will restore Social Security like that. 
Uh, I believe if we talk about this across the country, we will get Republican support because it doesn't matter where you live. Seniors everywhere want a viable Social Security. People who have been working their whole lives buying into Social Security as their social safety net want to know that it's there. So I dare Republicans to vote against it. I dare them because their constituents will be angry and will vote them out. That's the kind of common sense idea that there has to be common ground on. And I would take it right to the American people and use the bully puppet of the presidency to get it done. Why hasn't it been done? Certainly not under President Trump, because he doesn't care. Um, and I think uh, it's something that it needs leadership. And I will provide the leadership to shore up our Social Security and blow the cap to make sure it's fully funded forever. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Clara. Next question comes from Joan Krimlisk. Hello. Um, I, it's a question on energy. How would you implement more clean and renewable energy, upgrade grids, and reducing the use of fossil fuels? Pass the Green New Deal, step one, put a price on carbon, step two, and then really create a national narrative about why this should be our ambition as a country. Um, I love the parallel to John F. Kennedy because he did exactly that. He said, we want to put a man on the moon in the next 10 years, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And he knew that if he asked the American people to participate, every kid would want to be an astronaut. He knew that every, every uh, physicist and every mathematician would want to join NASA because it was the thing. And so why not do the same thing with green energy and really invest in our companies that are producing wind and solar and geothermal and hydropower and biofuels? Why not really reduce taxes for any company that's willing to build energy efficient homes or energy efficient transportation or energy efficient appliances? Why not invest in the infrastructure we're desperate for, the high speed rail, the rural broadband, the new electric grid, things that would really make energy efficiency and renewable energy economy possible? And why not engage the whole planet on making this the ambition of our generation, that we are going to solve it. And don't, don't negotiate a trade deal. Don't offer support to other nations unless they're willing to take this as seriously as America will. That's how you do it. You use our, our, our place in the world to lead the rest of the world, something President Trump has been deeply afraid of and unable to do. Thank you, Joan. Facebook question coming in from Don Lee. He asks, where was your outrage about immigrant children when Barack Obama was president? Um, I'm very concerned about what President Trump has done at our border. Uh, he has created an immigration policy where he is literally locking up children and parents, separating them. Seven children have died in his custody. No child that did not happen under President Obama's watch. Uh, we have literally dozens of children who still are not reunited with their parents. And that also did not happen under President Obama. So what we have is something that's very new. And it's very destructive. And so as president, I would do it entirely differently. Uh, I would fully fund border security. I would make sure we have all the money for cross-border terrorism, money for anti-drug, human, and gun trafficking. But I would deal with immigration as the uh, humanitarian issue it is, as the economic issue it is, as the family issue it is. I would pass comprehensive immigration reform with a pathway to citizenship for the 10 to 12 million people here already. I would create a 10-year-long pathway where during that time they had to pay their taxes, local taxes, property taxes, social security taxes, and if they do everything right, they can become a citizen in 10 years. And then at the border, I would deal with these families just streaming in by two things. First, I treat them humanely when they get here. If they present themselves to the Border Patrol agents, I would assign them lawyers and court dates. I have a community-based system where they can 
uh, live with families, live within a community, have accountability, uh, and have a proper humane process with real judges. Uh, we don't have judges appointed for life who are immigration judges. They're just employees of the Attorney General. And I would actually invest in the countries that are so unstable where families are fleeing. Uh, if you turn a blind eye to the suffering in places like El Salvador and Guatemala, then this will never end. You need to recognize when a mother is so afraid for her son, so afraid for his life because there's gang violence in her community and he's going to be killed within the year. She's so frightened she sends him north, knowing that he might not survive the journey, knowing that he might not make it because she knows that's better than a sure death where she is. That's how desperate these families are. And I just ask America to just think a moment about what it would be like if it was your child. It's untenable what's happening in these other places. But when you don't have the courage to help others who need you, it will come back and harm you, I promise you. Um, I've seen it in other places. Uh, I took a codel of senators to Syria and I went to one of the, not to Syria, but to um, Jordan and Turkey to see the Syrian refugees. And in one of the camps in Turkey, we met with mothers and they had tears streaming down their eyes and they're so angry. And they were looking at these senators and saying, you are so afraid of Osama bin Laden. Every day you turn a blind eye to the suffering here in this camp with all these refugees, you are creating thousands of them. She wasn't wrong. So turn a blind eye, it will hurt you. You must help others when they need it. Another Facebook question coming in from Tanya Knapp. She asks, what is your position on marijuana laws? I believe we should legalize it, we should deschedule it, and we should decriminalize it. And I'll tell you why. Um, first, from the healthcare perspective. I can't tell you how many patients I've met who medical marijuana and cannabis is life-changing. Whether you're a, a veteran who's trying to uh, deal with PTSD or chronic pain or chronic anxiety. Many veterans find uh, cannabis to be the most effective drug. Meet a mother or a father whose child has Dravet syndrome or a seizure disorder where these babies are having 100 seizures a day. They have found that CBD oil is far more effective than the barbiturates that are legal for their child to take. And why should a mother have to fly to Colorado or some other state to get the medicine, bring it back to their state, have it tested to make sure it's exactly the dose they need to just meet the needs so their child can survive? So I believe it should be fully legalized because we need medical marijuana in every state. We need to have it at every VA. I think we need to decriminalize it because the way our criminal just justice system has worked with regard to marijuana is unjust. Uh, there's racial bias in criminal uh, law enforcement. And I can tell you, um, Black and brown young men are arrested four times more often for uh, usage of marijuana, whereas a white young man uh, uses it the same amount. But it's that racial bias in our criminal justice system that has to be fixed. And when you are arrested and incarcerated uh, for marijuana, it could change your whole life. It might mean a job you won't get. It might mean you can no longer visit your mother in public housing. It might mean that uh, you don't get access to certain apartments. You don't get access to certain opportunities. It's life-changing. And if you don't have the bail that you need because of our cash bail system, you might be locked up until your court date, which means you're going to miss work the next day, which means if you're a single parent, no one's watching your child, which means it puts your whole life and it becomes upended. So for the criminal justice reasons alone, I want to decriminalize it. And I want to make sure anyone who has been arrested for marijuana possession that those arrests are vitiated. 
Uh, I would also then make sure we have equity investing. Because if you're starting a whole new industry through decriminalization and legalization and descheduling, why should Wall Street make all the money again, honestly? Why not? Why not give communities of color opportunities to own marijuana businesses, dispensaries, growers, um, and to, to create a market so they can help thrive? And then all the money and taxes that we get from this new legalized industry, let's put those resources back into the communities that were so disproportionately harmed because of institutional racism in our criminal justice system. Got about a minute left here. Can you give us our, your quick answer on what you would like to do with the opioid crisis? So legalizing marijuana will help, number one, because uh, I've heard from a lot of um, people who have survived opioid addiction that one of the best treatments is uh, marijuana for anxiety and for chronic pain. Second, uh, I would fully fund um, the prevention measures as well as the treatment measures. Uh, there's a bill in Congress that's going to put hundreds of billions of dollars into this effort uh, over the next 10 years that really can make a difference. Um, about $10 billion a year, and it would make a difference. Uh, and then last, um, I would make sure we take on the drug companies. I would criminally prosecute them, because the truth is, we've seen from the Sackler family's documents with Purdue Pharmaceuticals that they intentionally made the opioids more addictive to addict more patients. They cared more about profits than patients. It's the definition of greed, and in this instance, I think it's criminal. So I hope and I would urge uh, that we fully prosecute and investigate anyone who has willfully addicted patients uh, to try to have record profits. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, thank, thank you. you so much for joining us for thank conversation so with the candidate. Thank, thank you, you to our town hall audience. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.